Computer, initialize Holosuite. On this bombastic episode of StarPod Log, we discuss the contents of StarLog magazines from 1978 issues 15 and 16. Billy Hogan gives us a behind-the-scenes look at the new Superman movie. Jeff Thompson discusses Rod Serling's The Twilight Zone. Paul Mount fills us in on Jerry Anderson's Space 1999 report. Yehuda Kleinman and Ron Salvatore discuss the merchandising of Star Wars. Edward German tells us about the 1955 classic This Island Earth. Mark O'Connell gives us the full story of The Invaders. Anthony Rooney recalls the details about the fantastic puppetry work of Jerry Anderson's Supermarionation. Michael Havens and Philip Brown consider the implications in Star Wars. All this, plus news about Battlestar Galactica, rumors about the new Buck Rogers TV series, all this and more on Star Pod Log. Greetings and felicitations. Hip, hip, hurrah, tally-ho. Hey, cutie pie. Hey, Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and love classic science fiction and fantasy. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what fandom was like years ago. But we leave the Star Trek-related content to our other podcast, StarPod Trek. If you are listening to us on a podcast app, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, which includes bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. Superman Celebration, July 30th through August 1st. That is in Metropolis, Illinois. I know it's one of your favorite outdoor events, isn't it, cutie? Yeah, it's always a fun con. What's it like? They have, first of all, a lot of cosplayers, you know, all superheroes, and it is so much fun. And they've got that big uh, Superman statue there, and, and it is so neat. You can just go up and, you know, have your picture taken with it. They've got a Superman museum, and they have lots of panels. They usually have um, celebrities, too, but they haven't booked any yet this year. We don't know if they're doing celebrities this year. Yeah, but it's a fun, free festival. It's almost like an outdoor indoor festival i mean it's like a street it's a street festival but then it has indoor activities too but everything is surrounding dc superheroes and you always said you're a dc girl so i am (laughs) and it's uh it's free too exactly it's totally free yeah it's awesome and dragon con september 2nd through 6th it's always labor day weekend atlanta georgia why is that one of our most beloved conventions of all time they just have so much going on. It's the biggest convention in the Southeast, and we have a lot of friends there. We've been going for years. We see a lot of the same people that we know, and it's great to see them. Plus, it's always great to meet new friends, and they have a huge uh, Star Trek program there. So you could go just for the Star Trek part of it. <laughs> or for the classic science fiction part, or the horror part. It's I've said a hundred times before that it's a convention within a convention within a convention. Like, that's how big it is. It encompasses multiple hotels, but if you have one sort of fandom, you could just stay in that one hotel and then do it all there. 
Star Wars fans have a Star Wars track. There's a fantasy track for Tolkien fans. And, and I mean, it's just, I, I like bopping in and out in all the rooms, in all the hotels. Because I can't limit myself to one fandom. That's why I love Starlog Magazine so much. It, it covers all the genres. Now, now, this year, because of COVID, they're doing, well, they're having a hybrid con. They said they're going to have in-person and online. So for those of you who don't want to travel there, you can still join them online. And Last year, we did an online, like we usually do live person panels, but last year we did an online panel. And so we'll see what we do this year if we do both in-person and online per panels i don't i don't really know yet but we do we plan on going there in person definitely all right let's open up starlog magazine issue number 15 cover date august 1978 interior advertisement for a close encounters the third kind hologram pendant if you wear a close encounter will you have one they are 16.95 each Latest news from the worlds of science fiction. Log entries. TV and movie news. Science fiction continues to make its presence felt in both TV and motion picture realms. It mentions that Buck Rogers is getting off the ground. Science fact takes a toe-tapping stance on ABC TV's award-winning educational show Schoolhouse Rock with the addition of a new segment entitled Science Rock. Do you ever remember Science Rock? No, I don't remember that one. I think um, that's one of the things that was planned but never went anywhere because I, I don't remember that at all. Well, in Schoolhouse Rock, they did a few science things. They had like, well, biology, like the nervous system, and I think they did something mm -hmm. on the weather system. Yeah. Maybe those are the ones they're talking about. Yeah, I don't think they made a, a different one. They they kind of integrated science into Schoolhouse Rock, which makes sense. It says that NBC is looking at a fantasy comedy pilot entitled Turnabout. Oh, I saw that, yeah. Did you like it? I did. Well, it was only on one season, though. But, it, you know, it was a comedy. A man and woman switch bodies. Mm-hmm. There's discussion of an all-new series called The Next Step Behind and Ghoul Arama. I don't know those. Universal TV is trying to launch a new face for the fall season in the guise of the famed comic book illusionist mandrake the magician i don't think that ever went anywhere abandoning science fiction for the moment george lucas is diving into comedy his next film is entitled the radio land murders and stars that rambling non-wookie steve martin i've never heard of that before yeah me neither i, I don't, I don't think, think that he, went anywhere yeah i don't think he really made it advertisement for real images now, this is a catalog that we have in our collection, and this is a one-page ad. I mean, you got to figure, in 1978, the average person did not have a VCR. But many people had Super 8 and 16-millimeter movies. This was fairly common. I know we had one at my grandparents' house. Just to give an idea of some of the things that were out there. A Buck Rogers serial with 12 chapters, $37.50. Seven Voyage of Sinbad. $26.95. And it was in multiple reels. Four reels, actually. So you didn't see the whole film in one. Cartoons, Betty Boop, $23.49 each. I mean, I wouldn't spend $23 on a Betty Boop VHS tape or a DVD. I can't believe the prices of these things. Star Wars. A highlight reel of Star Wars was $24.98. And it has a special notation, available June 15th, 
the 400-foot edition Super 8 sound of Star Wars is going to be $59.95. Can you imagine that? Amazing. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, for for what, almost $60? So that's a couple hundred dollars in today's money for a movie reel. Like, I've never seen one in real life like this. I know some people have them in their collection. I think it's it would be awesome to watch a movie on a projector like this nowadays. Hi, my name is Billy Hogan, and I am the host of the Superman Fan Podcast. Today, I'll be reviewing the article, Faster Than a Speeding Bullet, But Still Six Months Later, The Man of Steel Has Got to Fly, an illuminating interview with Superman director Richard Donner by Richard Myers. The article picks up after the previous article from issue 11, when... Everyone was trying to make the deadline of March 1978 to release the first Superman film. But because of the challenges during production, the deadline was moved to Christmas of 1978. Writer Meyer spoke with director Richard Donner, who said the key to making a successful Superman movie was making the Man of Steel fly. He bragged about his production team, beginning with Jeffrey Unsworth, who was the cinematographer on the film, and who unfortunately would go on to pass away after the end of production, but before the release of the film. Donner also bragged on production designer John Barry. Donner said not only would they have to create an entertaining movie about a strange visitor from another planet with powers and abilities beyond those of mortal men, but they couldn't lose the reality of the film. Now, mentioned in the article was the word that Donner had put outside the studio building of verisimilitude, which meant making something real. Like on Krypton, where Marlon Brando and Susanna York portrayed Kal-El's parents on an incredibly advanced civilization far beyond what we could imagine on Earth, yet they had to be believable as the parents of their only son who they would have to send to Earth. Then Pa Kent would have to convince his son that the reason he came to Earth was not to make touchdowns. And I have to say here that Glenn Ford was one of my favorite actors who ever portrayed Pa Kent. He was very soft-spoken, but knew how to get Clark's attention with just a few words. Like, for instance, after Clark outran the car driven by the high school football player and full of cheerleaders, Paul said, Showing off again, aren't you, son? And Clark stood up as if Paul Kent had grabbed him by the scruff of the neck. Back to the article, Donner also felt that the picture would work if they could get the emotions of Clark Kent and Superman to bring out the realism of the fantastic situations in the movie. The article revealed that principal photography ended in 1977, but there was a lot of work still to be done on special effects as well as editing the millions of feet of film, and not to mention preparing for the sequel of the first Superman film, then planned to be released a year after the first movie. Actually, it would not be released for three years, and that would be in the summer of 1981. 
Donner was happy with the progress so far, but still wondered if the movie audience would be happy with the film. Before returning to work, Donner said that he would try to create a cliffhanger ending for the first movie, like in the Hopalong Cassidy serials he loved watching as a kid. Donner talked about making the fantastic real, which reminded me of the slogan on the movie poster of the first Superman movie, You'll Believe a Man Can Fly. As it would turn out, the ending of Superman the movie was not the cliffhanger they had planned on at the writing of this article, and sadly, Donner would not be around to finish Superman 2. The challenges during production would eventually strain the relationship between him and the Salkinds so that they fired him and brought in Richard Lester, who would finish Superman 2 and direct Superman 3. Writer Myers did another great job building excitement for the first Superman movie, and if I would have read this in the mid to late 1970s, it would have whetted my appetite even more for the first Superman movie. If you enjoy vintage comic book stories, you might want to check out my podcast, The Superman Fan Podcast, at thesupermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com, where at the moment I am reviewing the Superman stories from 1966. And we're here to talk about Twilight Zone with superfan Jeff Thompson. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here with you to talk with you about the Twilight Zone. I'm Jeff Thompson. I uh, uh, taught English at Tennessee State University for many years, and I am the author of three books about producer-director Dan Curtis, who created Dark Shadows. Um, I also have written for Film Facts, uh, Imagine Movies, Film Fatales, Midnight Marquee, Scarlet Street, and other magazines. But today I want to talk about an article in uh, the 15th issue of Starlog. I read and collected every issue of Starlog, and uh, I especially enjoyed the early issues, which um, looked at classic TV shows and included episode guides to them, like The Twilight Zone, The Outer Limits, Wonder Woman, The Incredible Hulk, Logan's Run, The Fantastic Journey, and others. And in Starlog number 15, there is an article by Ed Naha called Rod Serling's Dream. And with it is an episode guide to the 1959 to 1964 Twilight Zone series. The episode guide is by Gary Gerani. And I have read and reread that article and episode guide many times over the years and still refer to the episode guide even now that I have Mark Scott Zickrey's excellent book, The Twilight Zone Companion, but I like to look at, at uh, both, you know, to get different ideas and facts uh, about the episodes. This is one of the things I try to tell younger people. When I say Starlog was our internet, this is a perfect example of it with regards to episode guides. Oh, yes. Uh, Starlog uh, kept us up to date on what was coming out new, like Space 1999 or other TV shows, Logan's Run. But then it also really educated us about The Outer Limits, The Twilight Zone, uh, TV shows from the 50s and 60s uh, that perhaps were a little bit before our time, but were coming back in reruns. And when I was a teenager and in my early 20s, 
um, a local TV station here in Nashville was running a Twilight Zone episode every night. So that's when I I started watching and and digesting and contemplating these episodes. And then later I got most of the episodes on VHS and now all of the episodes on DVD. I also watched the the Twilight Zone marathon on the Sci-Fi Channel every New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. I know that the Sci-Fi Channel uh, shortens the episodes, uh, but I still like to watch one of my favorite shows when it is on television, like Dark Shadows on Decades or Cole Shack the Night Stalker on MeTV. Um, so it, it's always fun to turn on the television and see the episodes, but... Luckily, I have the uh, uncut, uninterrupted episodes on VHS and DVD so that I can go to those when I want to. So let's talk about this article. All right. Um, Ed Naha wrote Rod Serling's Dream and um, uh, gave us some background about uh, Rod Serling, who was a a writing genius. He uh, was active in the early days of television, uh, the days of live uh, plays uh, that he wrote, like Patterns and Requiem for a Heavyweight and others. Uh, he got rejected over and over before he was able to begin his successful uh, career in television. He he submitted 40 scripts to networks and production companies and, and was rejected 40 times until finally he hit and started uh, uh, writing plays uh, for TV, mostly about uh, contemporary issues, social problems, uh, uh, things like that. But Rod Serling started running into trouble from the sponsors and networks and censors because he was trying to make comments about controversial topics or social problems. And the censors kept saying, well, no, don't say that or change this to that or soft pedal that. So Rod Serling got the idea, well, perhaps I could make my commentary about current events in a fantastical setting. If I used science fiction, fantasy, suspense, uh, sometimes gothic horror, and, and wrote stories using those literary devices, but uh, putting in messages about life today and uh, our strengths and weaknesses and what what I I like about the world today and what I wish could change. So that's what he started doing with The Twilight Zone. Rod Serling wrote uh, the lion's share of episodes, but uh, he had many other great writers working for him. Richard Matheson, author of I Am Legend, The Incredible Shrinking Man, Somewhere in Time, and great writers like Charles Beaumont, Ray Bradbury, Earl Hamner, George Clayton Johnson, Henry Slessor, Reginald Rose, John Tomerlin. The Twilight Zone was such a sunburst of creativity all the way around because of Serling's and others' writing and great directing, wonderful music by composers like Bernard Herrmann, Jerry Goldsmith, Fred Steiner, Franz Voxman, Robert Drasnan, Nathan Van Cleve, and, of course, great acting uh, performed by veteran classic actors as well as new up-and-coming stars who later would become superstars because of later projects like Bewitched or The Carol Burnett Show or 
movies in the case of Robert Redford. So it, it was a great, um, a, a great um, um, uh, explosion of talent uh, behind the camera and in front of the camera. So it all came together to create some some extremely memorable, unforgettable, and meaningful episodes. What are some of your uh, favorite episodes from the first season? I, I like uh, The After Hours, The Big Tall Wish. That's one of the uh, several Twilight Zone episodes that I have shown to my students at Tennessee State University. What about The Hitchhiker? The Hitchhiker, yes, based on a, uh, a play by Lucille Fletcher, who was married to Bernard Herrmann. That was a great one. The Lonely, The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, one of the best episodes. Amazing. Yes, one of the best episodes of the series and still has something to say to us today. Uh, Odd Couple star Jack Klugman was in four episodes, including A Passage for Trumpet. A Stop at Willoughby was a good one. Third from the Sun was a weird paranoid episode with with, uh, a lot of good actors in it. And... um, um, Time enough at last, of course, we remember with the the broken glasses. Burgess Meredith classic. Right. And Walking Distance, which Mm -hmm. uh, many Twilight Zone fans uh, say is one of the very best episodes, Gig Young, who goes back in time. I love time travel, Somewhere in Time and and Dark Shadows. So I liked the time travel episodes of the Twilight Zone and Walking Distance with its atmosphere and its acting and its great score by Bernard Herrmann is a a really good one. Um, What about the second season? Oh, the second season has uh, continues to uh, produce classics that we know and love. Back There is uh, a time travel episode with a great score by Jerry Goldsmith, and that music was reused on the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. Eye of the Beholder, of course, is one of the ones we remember with that... Donna Douglas. Yes, with that great makeup by William Tuttle. Mm -hmm. The Howling Man, one of of the scary episodes, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's it's, uh, quite uh, quite effective. A Hundred Years Over the Rim, The Invaders, one of my favorites, Agnes Moorhead, uh, and a Jerry Goldsmith score. The Odyssey of Flight 33, Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up? Um, some of the uh, Twilight Zone episodes uh, were interesting in that essentially just one person was on the screen, like The Invaders with Agnes Moorhead, or uh, uh, Where Is Everybody, or Mm -hmm. The Jeopardy Room, or uh, Nervous Man in a $4 Room, or The Last Night of the Jockey. So Rod Serling was able uh, to... uh, to write for one person and and what that uh, person was feeling and going through, or a small ensemble, and was was a a master of dialogue. Um, some of his vocabulary is not necessarily words we still use today, but I wish we did because his his dialogue was always uh, intelligent. Third season, yes, the third, it continues on. Yes, the third season had a lot of, of uh, memorable episodes. Um, the Changing of the Guard as a teacher, I like that one. And The Dummy, one of the two yeah. ventriloquist episodes, that was another scary one. And Five Characters in Search of an Exit, um, which uh, had a surprise ending like so many of the episodes did. Another Jack Klugman episode, A Game of Pool. Ray Bradbury's contribution to The Twilight Zone, I Sing the Body Electric. Uh, 
It's a Good Life, of course, Billy mm-hmm. Mooney. That, that's a, a famous one, sending people to the cornfield. Little Girl Lost, a, a Richard Matheson script, which is quite eerie. The Midnight Sun, which has another great surprise ending to it. Nothing in the Dark, uh, as I mentioned Robert Redford before, playing the personification of death. That's a really good one. And Once Upon a Time, uh, Buster Keaton's episode, which uh, most of which is, is like a silent movie. Uh, the Shelter, and of course To Serve Man, another one that we remember and remember the... Uh, 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 shocking surprise ending to that one. Now, the fourth season is perhaps the weakest season of the four because uh, the length of the show expanded to 60 minutes. And I don't think that hour-long length uh, served the Twilight Zone as well as the 30-minute length because essentially the Twilight Zone, each episode of the Twilight Zone, was a well-made short story. And many of them were adaptations of stories that had been written and published by Richard Matheson or Henry Slessor and others. So I think that the, the, the best Twilight Zone episodes were those tight, compact, 30-minute episodes. But Agreed. But there were still a few uh, memorable episodes in the hour-long season, like He's Alive, In His Image, No Time Like the Past, of late, I think, of Cliffordville. But I was glad that The Twilight Zone reverted to 30 minutes for its fifth and final season, which may not have been the strongest season either, but still produced uh, some uh, uh, episodes that we know and love today, Caesar and Me, another one of the ventriloquist dummy episodes, In Praise of Pip, another Jack Klugman episode with Billy Mooney too, Living Doll, uh, we remember that one because of Talky Tina and Telly Savalas, yeah. right? The Long Morrow, The Masks, Ida mm. Lupino directed that one with yeah. more great makeup by Bill Tuttle. Night Call, Steel, Uncle Simon, and of course Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, William Shatner and the Gremlin on the uh, airplane. By now, so many of these Twilight Zone episodes and their dialogue and their twists are baked into our collective psyche because we grew up watching them in reruns on local stations and then on the Sci-Fi Channel. Uh, The Sci-Fi Channel acquired the rights to the Twilight Zone in 1995 and started running the show in in chronological order every night, uh, twice a night. So that's when I started watching them over and over again and going back to Ed Naha's article in Starlog number 15, Rod Serling's Dream, and the episode guide written by Gary Girani, which is excellent. And by the way, both Ed Naha and Gary Girani and Mark Scott Zickrey, who wrote The Twilight Zone Companion, are on Facebook. So uh, the next time you're on Facebook, you might want to look them up and uh, tell them that we talked about their work. Um, uh, So Rod Serling's dream has become our reality because we know and love these episodes and we can quote dialogue from them. It's a cookbook. And uh, we use the term Twilight Zone in in our our daily conversation. So uh, Rod Serling's work uh, will live on Uh, I believe he has succeeded in traveling through time. And, of course, there have been other reincarnations of the Twilight Zone over the years. In the 1980s, the 
theatrical movie and then the uh, the revival TV series that ran first on CBS and then in syndication mm-hmm. and had uh, writers like Harlan Ellison and Richard Matheson attached uh, to that series. I really liked the 2002 revival of The Twilight Zone. I think that it captured the tone and spirit of the original. Of course, nothing can be as good as the original series. That's true with the Dark Shadows, Twilight Zone, and many other shows. But I really liked the 2002 series because it seemed to complement and build upon the original series, especially because uh, of some of the remakes of episodes and the continuation episode of It's a Good Life, and, and plenty of new stories, too. And um, and then in 1994, CBS showed a made-for-TV movie called Twilight Zone, Rod Serling's Lost Classics, which uh, uh, had uh, a couple of Rod Serling's leftover scripts. Jack Palance was in one. And in 1995, PBS did a really good documentary about the life of Rod Serling. If you haven't seen that, try to find that. And then more recently, the 2019 Twilight Zone revival, which ran for 20 episodes, came out, and I I recently watched it on DVD and found it to be very interesting and well done, very much uh, a 21st century take on the ideas uh, uh, from our beloved Twilight Zone from the 1960s. And I uh, was a really big fan of Night Gallery, which was Rod Serling's early 70s follow-up to The Twilight Zone. Uh, uh, Because I like dark shadows and horror and vampires, I liked how Night Gallery was more of a horror show. Rod Serling didn't always like that aspect, but but I liked how uh, many of the Night Gallery episodes went into a more outlandish, horrific uh, avenue than some of the Twilight Zone episodes. But uh, some of those Night Gallery episodes were very much like what you would have seen on the Twilight Zone, uh, including the scary ones and the sci-fi ones. Uh, So, uh, yes, I liked Night Gallery, and I'm surprised that someone hasn't uh, revived Night Gallery the way uh, there have been many um, new iterations of the Twilight Zone. But maybe Night Gallery will come around again. Who knows? It's being called the biggest network gamble of the decade. It has also been variously referred to as Star Worlds, Earth Star, and Galactica. What it is, is the grandest, most technically ambitious, and most expensive space fantasy ever created for TV. Get ready for Battle Star Galactica. I mean, this article is kind of previewing us on what Battle Star Galactica is going to be like. And it's interesting that battle and star are two words initially. We know this is a production involving John Dykstra. We know him from... Star Wars. Of course. I mean, that's one of the reasons why so many kids our age love Battlestar Galactica, is because of the visual effects. And and it was made because that movie was so popular. Absolutely. And also it's a Glenn Larson project. Glenn Larson had just got off of working on the Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew series. He also had some background in The Outer Limits. And it gives us an idea, this article, of of what it's going to be like. It's going to be a different type of TV show. It said it's going to be a series of movies initially. And we know that the pilot episode, or the the first, what became three episodes when they broke it up, was, in a sense, a movie. 
Well, it was also released in theaters. So big changes. They wanted to make it a, almost like V the miniseries. Do you remember the original V series from the 80s? Yeah, that was I mean, a miniseries. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this article gives us the idea that it's going to be set up kind of, sort of like that, that there are going to be blocks of two and three hour mini movies that are all interconnected. But obviously those plans changed. But the idea of having John Lykstra and his team come over was was absolutely amazing. It says that, as with Star Wars, Galactica's principles will have their share of life-and-death situations along with lighter moments. So, as you brought up, the success of Star Wars opened the doors to science fiction on television in, in ways that we could have never have dreamed of previously. And it gave us a, a lot more fun TV shows to watch. It states, we'll be doing stories that are familiar to people, just in a whole different context. Like, we've got the Pearl Harbor attack for openers, then take off like Wagon Train. From there on, it's Cowboys and Indians, with them constantly being pursued. There's lots of analogies to current events in our own society as well. So, it's an article like this, a teaser that gave fans of this time in 1978 something to look forward to on television. Hello, this is Paul Mount here, reporting from beyond the sea, right across the water, in the UK. Talking in this episode about the first of Jerry Anderson's Space Report columns. Now, it's interesting as, uh, as a, I was a Brit, so familiar with the worlds of Jerry Anderson and the work of Jerry Anderson and how important it was in the 60s and 70s. It's interesting to note that really, I suppose, even though it wasn't a huge hit series, uh, Space 1999 was the first time that Jerry Anderson's name made a big splash in America. Um, all the shows that he made, uh, as part of Century 21 back in the 60s, uh, didn't really make a huge impact in America. They weren't networked. I think the same was true of Space 1999. But I think that the arrival of fan culture and magazines like Starlog, um, suddenly made people, certainly in the States, more aware of his work. And there was certainly a a cult following for Space 1999, as there had been for UFO a few years earlier. Of course, we remember the stories of how the show became hugely popular in on certain channels, I think in New York, and uh, raised the possibility of a second series of UFO, which unfortunately never came to anything, and Space 1999 rose from the ashes of those ideas. So certainly, Jerry Anderson, I think his reputation had picked up a bit in America in the 70s, in the wake of probably both UFO and then Space 1999, although, as I say, unfortunately, neither show were particularly big hits, uh, which, of course, is one of the reasons that um, the second season of Space 1999 was um, was so different to the first one. So here in um, Starlog issue 15, we have the first of Jerry Anderson's Space Report columns. Now, I seem to recall that later on, Jerry wrote the columns completely himself, but this first one is edited by David Hirsch, one of the Starlog staff. And it takes the form really of question and answer um, sort of format where questions that have been sent in about Jerry Anderson's work and then they've been referred to Jerry for comment and uh, discussion. So the, the, we have a brief introduction to, um, um, as it says, Space 1999's Alive and Well and Living in Syndication. The show continues to increase its fan following as more people discover the show for the first time. Starlog has been receiving a steady flow of mail from readers want more information about space as well as the other works of its highly imaginative producer creator Jerry Anderson. In response, 
Starlog is proud to present the premiere of Jerry Anderson's Space Report. Jerry will be answering your questions about Space 1999 and other Anderson productions. Many of the illustrations accompanying this column have never been printed before in the US. And in this issue, Jerry addresses himself to some of the most commonly asked questions. So it's interesting looking through the questions. There's half a dozen, I think, here. Jerry Anderson, as ever, is quite blunt in his responses. He doesn't offer fans false hope. He doesn't dangle carrots, as it were. He just tells it like it is in respect of um, shows that have been made and, and the possibility for shows in the future. The first question, for example, is from Frida Gorgeous in Leighton, Alabama, who asks, I would like to know who has the rights for the Super Space 1999 show, and please, can we, the fans, do to save it? I want to help in any way possible. Jerry doesn't beat about the bush. Thank you for your complimentary reference to Space 1999, Frida. The rights are held by ITC Entertainment, who have office in New York. What can you, the fans, do to save it? Well, sadly, I think it's probably too late. The sets have now all been destroyed, and the key elements to this particular show, e.g. the artists and technicians, are scattered across the globe. Maybe the answer is a new science fiction series, possibly shot in the States. It's always been my ambition to make a science fiction show in your country. Of course, sadly, that never came to pass. Um, of course, it's interesting. He just says, nope, it's done, it's over, it's finished. We don't tend to get that these days. When a show attracts a fan following and is cancelled, there's either talk of it being hawked around various networks and um, streaming services, which, of course, options that weren't available to Jerry in the 70s, or there's talk of campaigns, fan campaigns, that will make networks change their minds. Back in the day, back in the 60s and 70s, when a show finished, it finished, and that was the end of it, and there was no false hope held out. But that, I think that was Jerry's way anyway. He wouldn't sort of... I think Jerry... When his shows were finished, he moved on to the next one. Even when Thunderbirds was a massive hit in the 60s, it ended, and he just moved on to create something else. We didn't have that culture of sticking to one franchise and sort of running it into the ground, which we tend to have here. Um, then the next question is from Becky Pagel, who lives in or lived in Millbank in South Dakota. Could you please answer a question I have? Who played Malik on the Space 1999 episode of Dawkins? My friend says it might have been Ralph Bates. When the show was broadcast here, the TV station didn't show the credits. Again, this is a reflection of the times. Of course, these days, if we want to know any of that sort of information, we go straight to Google, we go straight to Wikipedia, and it's all there. But this is 1977, 76 or 77, decades before the internet was invented. And the information you had was the information you had. If you were lucky, you could pick up a book somewhere. If you were lucky, you made a note of credits or you knew somebody. But you generally, genuinely had to write in and ask who played a part in, in an episode. It, it's almost unthinkable now in these days when information, every bit of information we want is available at the click of a button that people had to write in letters. Um, Jerry, again, quite blunt. Um, the part of Malik was played by Jerry Sunquist, Becky, so I'm afraid that your friend was wrong. <laughs> Simple as that. And then he goes on to say how unfair that your TV station should not call the credits. Um, next question. In fact, um, and there's an editor's note here from David Hurst. It says, the point of interest, the part of Arcom was played by Patrick Charlton, the second actor that played the title character of the BBC's long-running Doctor Who television series. And of course, again, at this time, Doctor Who wasn't particularly well-known in America. Next question. Can you explain why main mission was changed to command centre when Space 1999 began its second year? This came from Richard Bendel in Woodstock, Ontario in Canada. Um, again, Jerry is sort of honest to an extent. I mean, we all know now that there was a lot of behind the scenes um, difficulties with season two. Uh, Fred Freeberger came in and changed the format of the show and the format of the sets. Here, Jerry is... Um, guarded about it really. He doesn't, he doesn't hint at any behind the scenes dissent, in fact quite the reverse, but of course we all know that things weren't quite um, 
Sweetness and Light. And as he says, as most readers know, Richard, I was joined in the second season of Space 1999 by American producer Fred Freeberger. Together we made a sincere effort to reshape the show, taking into account the constructive feedback that we'd received. One of the decisions was to move the nerve centre underground now that the Alphans had realised they were very often in hostile territory, and in doing so the new nerve centre was called Command Centre. Whether the changes in the second season were considered by the fans to be an improvement or otherwise, I would like to make it clear that Fred and I had an excellent relationship and all changes were made after we consulted carefully. Therefore, any praise or criticism must be levelled at us both. There we are. Um... Undoubtedly, those decisions were made between the two of them. I'm sure Jerry had some doubts about some of them. And I can, in fact, see the logic in moving uh, Moonbase Alpha's command centre underground, because you would, if you were on the surface of a planet travelling through space, you'd probably not want to be exposed on the surface to any hostile uh, space debris or alien invaders who might approach. So you'd go underground. But, of course, the other changes to the format, I'm sure Jerry wasn't hugely happy with. Um, For example, David... Anonishek in Winber, Philadelphia. His next question, I'd like to know why Barry Morse, Victor Bergman, Frentis Hancock and Clifton Jones did not return for the second year. And again, Joe's response is just blunt and to the point. The first season of Space 1999 already had a large number of permanent characters. When it was decided to introduce the alien character Mayer and the likeable Tony Vergesti, a matter of opinion, we felt that it would be extremely difficult to create stories that would involve so many personalities. We are famous rose growers in our country, David, and the experts say that if you prune the bush hard, you get fewer roses but bigger blooms. We pruned hard. Yes, well, there we are. Um, an attempt at humour, um, trying to justify the loss of some much-loved cast members in the first season. But I think, it, it again, it sort of explains what we... Or just it explains... Not exactly explains, but it, it confirms what we knew, that the cast members were pruned to bring in those two new cast members who thought might attract a new audience. Um, then there's a question about Journey to the Far Side of the Sun, the film Doppelganger from Don Hicks in Xenia, Ohio. How did this system work that kept the astronauts asleep during the three week space flight? And Jerry goes into quite a technical response. Plumbing connections were made to the astronauts through surgically implanted plugs in their wrists, enabling their blood to go through a heart, lung and kidney machine, thus allowing their bodies to be constantly monitored and supplemented by nutrients and drugs that would maintain the astronauts in a state of hibernation during the journey. A timing device arranged for other drugs to be introduced into the blood supply in order that they should regain consciousness upon arrival at their destination. Don. Um, so that's Don's explanation for a quite obscure question about journey to the far side of the sun. The final question in this first uh, space report is from A. Rivera in Bronx, New York. During the early 1960s, I recall a program which appeared in New York City called Planet Patrol, which was done in supermarination. Could you tell me about it? Uh, Jerry's response... Slightly fudges it. The only supermarination programs being transmitted around that time was Supercar and Fireball XL5, the latter being aired by the NBC network. If it is my show that you're referring to, I would suspect you're talking about Fireball XL5. Either you have got the title wrong, or the title was changed for transmission in the USA. Assume we've got the right show. It was produced here in England in 1961 and was the fifth series to be made with puppets. It was also the last of our shows in black and white. Uh, there's an edited note then from David Hirsch to say Planet Patrol was not an alternative title for Fireball XL5. It was a puppet series syndicated in 1963 that was produced by another company. Planet Patrol chronicled the adventures of Captain Larry Dart, Husky, the Martian, and Slim, the Venusian of the Galosphere Patrol, as they battled to protect the solar system against alien invaders. So that's the first of Jerry Anderson's space reports. It's interesting, um, looking back. I mean, this is a point when Jerry was sort of in limbo, or starting to drift into limbo post-space 1999. He had no more projects in the pipeline although he's working on, he was always working on new ideas and concepts but there was nothing firmly 
in his sights following the axing of Space 1999. And it's, again, it's a reflection of, of, I think, what we know of him, that he he was quite sort of blunt and to the point. Uh, show finished and it finished and that was it. Um, people are either wrong or they're right. And um, But it's interesting to, to read comments from him personally in this nicely curated first Space Report column. Uh, that's it for me for this episode. I shall catch up with you again very soon. So this is Yehuda Kleinman, and I'm here with my friend Ron Salvatore. And we're going to be discussing merchandising for Star Wars products in 1978, which was covered in the issue on an article on page 56 called The Selling of Star Wars. And uh, has a couple of interesting products that it's discussing. This is an issue from August 1978, and it's really premiering these items that we've become so familiar with throughout the years. Some of the things it discusses and it shows pictures of are the Kenner products, including puzzles and the stuffed Chewbacca, along with Give a Show projector set and bop bags. Um, Non-Kenner items that are also displayed in this article include factors pieces, such as the Darth Vader poster, as one of the posters that were available that year, as well as a Luke Skywalker pin and also made by Factors, uh, but available through the fan club, the Brotherhood of Jedi Knight patch. Um, right. And it also discusses the Bradley watches and the bed sheets and all the other things that were interesting. And uh, we can talk about some of our favorite products and how they were merchandise and how the merchandising was performed that year. Sure. And I guess we should mention that you said it was August of '78. Uh huh. So that's uh, quite a bit of time after Star Wars had been released, so, you know, a year plus. Um, and, you know, that's generally because it would have taken, you know, quite a bit of time to get a lot of these products to market. So most of these toys would have taken a year or so. So by that time, I guess they'd probably been on store shelves for a few months, uh, some of these things, rather than a whole year. But the movie had been out for a while by then. Yeah, and as the movie continued to have such a long-standing interest in the public opinion products kept going and merchandising contracts kept getting signed and uh, some of my favorite things that were mentioned here were the bradley watches the texas instrument watches which are an underappreciated area of star wars collecting and right i know you've um collected quite a few of those our friend um tony damata yeah um, tony's been doing big... for years Right. So is it the uh, Bradley had the mechanical watch license and Texas Instruments had the digital? Is that the, how it went? Well, actually, Texas Instrument had the license first and then Bradley had the license second. Oh, okay. Texas, yeah, what they actually put out was very interesting at the time because they put out LED watches for the first time at a affordable rate. Prior to that, the LED watch was this fantastic new invention over the regular analog watch. And mm-hmm. it was prior to the LCD watches. Um, okay. The LED watches had been were initially released in, in gold cases and were selling for hundreds of dollars. Texas Instrument found a way to make these watches very affordable. It coincided with the premiere of Star Wars. These came out very early. They may have even been available at the theater as a premium. They were certainly available through many different contests, including the, um, the dishwashing detergent promotion with the Frisbees as well. I forget which company that is. And, um, oh, mm-hmm. Pine Soul. That was Pine Soul. Pine Soul, yep. So, and um, always advertised in the comic books. But um, after the LED watches became 
something that uh, were not very popular, and they moved on to LCD. Bradley got the license, and they did. Bradley had been doing character watches for many decades, so they were ready to go and to go roaring into it. And they also made a combination of LCD watches, the classic digital watch from the 80s and 70s, um, along with mechanical watches that were really good Swiss movements and very durable. They really want to live. They still tend to work today when you get them for the most part. Right. Um, so what are some of your other favorite products here that are mentioned in this article? I think all of them. But, you know, um, I really also like the bop bag. And I think that they're also something that is, it speaks to the time because they were a popular thing in the late 70s and 80s. And I don't see much after that, you know, and it was a way for kids to get out their frustrations and energy right. to living daylight better than inflatable Darth Vader. Right. And um, off the top of my head, I don't think, I mean, there were Kenner product. Uh, I don't think Kenner had much experience making bot bags off the top of my head. So I think that was one of the many product categories they sort of branched into um, just in order to get Star Wars products on the shelves. But certainly um, bot bags were popular in that era. I don't know. I don't, I don't think that bot bags are still a thing, really. But there was a lot of uh, licensed bot bags in the late 70s, early 80s, and, and Kenner probably saw that as a good opportunity uh, to make some character bot bags. Yeah, I think they were encouraging kids in the peacenik times of the 70s to stop beating on each other. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, and the the photo there, which is a Kenner stock photo, you know, that photo is, I think, the one used on the Darth Vader bop-bag box. Shows a kid with some great 70s bell bottoms just kind of, like, mm. rearing back to slap Darth Vader. And, and so they made uh, Darth Vader, Chewbacca, R2-D2, and oddly enough, the Jawa. Um, yeah. The, rare, the Chewbacca and the Jawa are, Jawa are rarer than the Vader and the and the, uh, the R2-D2. So um, those are the four bop-bags that Kenner made. I once tried to blow up one of those Joel bags at the archive at the first archive party, I think, and they must have been new at making them because the the seals were all well. It is forty years old, but you know the thing was <laughs> yeah. it just almost crumbled in my fingers, and I tried yeah. to duct tape the thing together for about an hour. But they have very you know very cool graphics, but yeah, I mean I don't I'm not surprised it hasn't survived all those years. One of the interesting things about this article, Yehuda, is that although it has Kenner items, it doesn't really focus on the action figures. Um, and even, you know, back in that day, the action figures would have been probably the premier licensed item out there. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. It, it almost seems like the, the focus of the article is to get into some of the weirder things that's been released. Yeah, that's what it looks like to me as well. They're actually focusing on everything but what everybody knows that's already out there at a later point after the movie is out. Yeah. And, and talking about the figures would probably be very redundant because that's what everybody was inundated with. And you don't really yeah. see too many early articles discussing the merchandising of other products. They were just sort of out there. So it's sort of interesting to see it. Yeah, well, they mentioned 30 or so licensees at that time. And they act like that was a lot because at the time it was a lot. But I, I'm not sure what the number of licensees uh, hmm. is that was on board for Return of the Jedi or, you know, you know, Lord help us, um, the Phantom Menace. But it was certainly more than 30. <laughs> so oh, it expanded yeah. from there. Um, yeah, you know, also it covers the puzzles, which is, I know, one of your faves. And uh, it shows that 500-piece puzzle with the iconic picture of Luke and Tatooine standing on one knee in a contrapposto position. 
Yeah, so the puzzles, Kenner, Kenner made a bunch of different series of puzzles. Uh, I did a Star Wars Collector's Archive blog post I did on those, uh, if anybody wants to check that out. Uh, and so the one, I think, pictured there, the Luke, that looks like actually one of the early issues. Um, so the early ones are kind of mauve and blue, and those were issued in 1977. Um, and then they were reissued later on in black boxes in 1978. So... Um, that would certainly have been um, one of the product categories that was on store shelves in 1978. Yeah, what was interesting also was if you look at the Canadian stuff, as you pointed out to me a while back, that they kept the pink and blue going for a while longer. Oh, yes. So, yeah, the Canadian ones, they they kept those, the blue and the pink color all through the the line pretty much. So uh, that's one of the interesting things about the Canadian puzzles. Interesting variation. This article also has a great backsplash page. And uh on the inside cover of the back page it has it has a advertisement from a company called Star Trek Allure. And on the advertisement they're showing pictured the classic set that was called the heritage set on the archive for those little pewter figures in a painted form and it discusses different ways to get these in terms of options about how they could come with different finishes. And this is actually a bootleg of the bootleg of a, of the bootleg. And so this has an interesting history. Yeah, this is um, one of the, the key ads for that set. You know, as you mentioned, it's a, uh, these were, we believe, well, we know that they were the originals, well, not all of the figures, but the originals of the bulk of the figures were done for um, Archive Miniatures, which was a an unlicensed set of gaming miniatures. And then someone made copies of those, and then we think that copies were made of the copies, and that's the result of the Star Trek Galore set. And uh, also, several figures were sculpted specially for the Star Trek Galore set, which would be uh, Han, C-3PO, um, and uh, the Stormtroopers. So those are exclusive, and, and they're, they're substantially cruder, right? So that's the way you can pick them out. Yeah. Uh, and the Star Trek Galore was a company that sold mostly Star Trek stuff, uh, they had their own catalog, and obviously they took out ads and magazines here and there, and that this is one of them selling this set of figures. And as you mentioned, you could buy them in several different finishes. The ones in the photos um, are the, the painted version, um, which, I don't know, is that your favorite of the sets? I think I, I'm kind of partial to the painted one. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, they're, they're really painted in a relatively interesting, kooky way, and so, yeah, you sort of fall in love with them. They come, They come that way, and these are... Um, they have other interesting sets. Um, the rarest one is really the gold-plated one, which is hard mm-hmm. to find, I think. And um, and they also have nickel-plated, which at this point, they look so tarnished, they tend to look like the unpainted version, too. Right. It's sometimes hard to tell them apart at this point. Right. Um, yeah, it's a favorite set of mine, and, and you're right, on the archive, that they're, the Star Wars Collector's Archive, we refer to them as the Heritage Set, which is a misnomer, so that that's wrong, and I have to correct that one of these days. Um, it is, this set was, Star Trek Galore, as far as I know, was the only seller of this particular set. And I've even found ads um, that were issued in Japan, also by Star Trek Galore. So uh, they advertised it pretty heavily. Um, and uh, I don't know if they got that. Presumably Lucasfilm probably said something to them. I mean, I don't think you can have an ad in the National Magazine on the back page and not get dinged by Lucasfilm on it. So I'm assuming they got a cease and desist. 
Yeah, you know, it's also interesting is the first generation of these bootlegs were out even before the Kenner figures. So these were really the earliest run of figures, although they were unlicensed. Right. And now the third generation were already at 1978, so the Kenner figures are out when these are being produced. But that first generation had been already stopped because of another season to this. Yeah. So, yeah, at some point, you know, usually and I will have to collaborate on an article on these things, but there's just uh, really information on the various um, versions of the, these these sculpts out there that it's, it's not a very easy thing to put together. So, but someday. Someday. I think that'll be really cool. And we can even discuss the little weird jewelry pieces that were made from some of the figures later, too. Yeah. yeah they, they also made some into keychains and whatnot, which is also interesting. Um, so, so what's your favorite 1978 item, Yehuda? Do you have a particular favorite Star Wars license item from that era? I, I do, but it's um, it's probably my premier poster from Israel for Star Wars, the theatrical one sheet. That's from '78. Right. And yeah, that's a great item. That's that that is very hard to find a piece from '78 that I would like more than that. Right. Well, that's a good choice. Um, one of my favorites is mentioned briefly in the article. I don't know if it's my favorite of all time, but one of my favorite um, product lines is the SD's. Model Rockets, right, which came out in the in '78. Uh, so that's when they debuted, um, and that's a pretty cool line with great box graphics. That's some of the great packaging graphics of that era for Star Wars. Yeah, that article is great. So Ron has an article. I'm just going to translate because Ron went underwater again for a brief second. But he was talking about his great article that he has on the SD's Model Rockets, also on the Star Wars Collector's Archive. And uh, so you know, a lot of great articles on um, pieces from this era on the archive to review. I always want to actually light one of those Estes rockets off, especially that R2-D2 one. Uh, in my experience, model rockets are super disappointing when you actually get to light them off, and they, half the time they don't work, so you'd probably just ruin the collectible. But maybe you can find a loose one. I'll try to find a loose one. Or, or your son Aaron, one release or something. Your son Aaron can probably make his own Special uh, model rocket. I would. I would assume. <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't think his are models. I think he can climb aboard. <laughs> Probably. Hello, I'm Edward German, longtime science fiction fan and novice podcaster. I want to tell you about one of my favorite science fiction movies from the 1950s, This Island Earth. This movie was considered to be the Star Wars of its day. It had a great cast and excellent special effects. The story follows a scientist, Cal Meacham, played by Rex Reason, who receives a mysterious package and is instructed to assemble a device. With the help of his lab assistant, they put together an advanced communication system. Meacham is contacted by an odd-looking person who states that he is recruiting scientists of his caliber. He is intrigued by the offer and takes a cross-country trip to work on this project despite the objections from his lab assistant. Once there, he meets up with other fellow scientists of his type. To his surprise, he meets an old friend of his, Dr. Ruth Adams, played by Faith DeMorgue. They once had a romance together, but have not seen each other in a long time. Also in the group of experts is Steve Carlton, played by Russell Johnson, best known as the professor from Gilligan's Island. Altogether, at what was an antebellum plantation somewhere, in the Georgia mountains, they all start to question the purpose of why they are there. It is later revealed that our host, Exter, Ex Exter, is played 
played by Jeff Morrow, is an alien. He explains that his world needs scientists to build weapons because their planet's dying and losing a war with a different world. All three try to escape, however. Steve Carlton is killed while Cal and Ruth flee to a small airplane. The plane gets pulled aboard an alien space, spacecraft by a green ray and becomes they all become cactus en route to the home world called Metaluna. They're both taken to see the supreme leader of the Metalunans. The leader is called the Monitor and threatens both Cal and Ruth with a lobotomy if they don't cooperate. At that moment, Metaluna suffers an enemy, an enemy attack and some part of the ceiling falls away. They both seize the, the opportunity to escape with the help of Ex- Exeter. The trio make it to one of the flyable ships and head back to Earth. On board, a stowaway mutant, a creature with large eyes and a head that looks like an exposed brain, attacks Ruth, but she, ex- but she escapes harm. The ship makes it back to Earth's atmosphere, so Ruth and Cal get into a small plane they used to escape the first time to leave the spaceship. However, Exeter, who is dying, stays on board and crashes the ship into the ocean. Cal and Ruth fly out of the spaceship and manage to get to a safe, di- safe distance while Watch the spaceship burn up. This silent Earth was part was was apart from most science fiction movies of the fifties. Unlike typical sci-fi B picture today, it was shot in color. It wasn't produced as a quickie, and it is more cerebral in its plot. This was unlike the other B pictures that were low budget, shot in black and white, and featured bug-eyed monsters. Monsters. The film uses color photography to create an effect of uh, moody atmospheres throughout the movie, as well as good overall visuals for effect scenes. The story was first published in Thrilling and Thrilling Wonder Stories as a three-part series, then published as a novel in 1953. Saber Productions, an independent film company, bought the rights to the story, and it was produced by William Audland and directed by Jack Arnold. This island Earth is rated as an A-list science fiction movie of the period, right up there with Destination Moon and Forbidden Planet. Producers put a lot of time and care into the making of the movie. It is certainly worth your time to watch it if you love 50s science fiction as I do. If you like 50s sci-fi movies like This Island Earth or even Bug-Eyed Monster movies or anything else related, you should check out my podcast, the 1950s Science Fiction Podcast, hosted by me, Edward German. It's Darth Vader! Watch out! And he's got a lightsaber! It's Kenner's new Star Wars action figures, each sold separately. I've got you now, Betty Kenobi! With R2-D2 and C-3PO, there's even Chewbacca and Han Solo. Someone's coming, Chewie. Who's there? It's Princess Leia and Luke Skywalker! Now I know the Force is with us. R2-D2, Darth Vader, C-3PO, and other Kenner's Star Wars action figures, each sold separately. Starlog Magazine, issue number 16. Cover date, September 1978. The interior ad shows a Star Wars watch, which I had as a kid. I remember getting it at Bradley's. It was $19.95 plus the $1.05 postage and handling, and I can't believe my aunt spent that much money on it. It's amazing how some of the things have come down in price. Like, you get watches all the time for $20 or less now. Because they just manufacture so many of them now. Log Entries. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Starlog and Star Wars debut in Japan. 
Well, Starlog Magazine started getting published in Japan. And I have to say, the layout and the pictures there blow away the American editions. I love looking at the pictures of the Japanese editions of Starlog. And also, Star Wars got released in Japan. And to this day, Star Wars is a massive phenomena to the Japanese people. Space SFX Wiz on Star Wars 2. Brian Johnson, the special effects master who created the visual magic of Space 1999, was recently named Supervising Director of Special Visual Effects for the new Star Wars 2, replacing John Dykstra, currently shooting Battlestar Galactica for ABC TV. New Avengers due for fall. This September will see the rebirth of a television legend. After almost a decade, the Avengers will be back fighting invisible men, ghosts, cybernauts, and various villain types. So Steed will return to American television with two new Avengers this fall. Lord of the Rings film in progress. After several decades of literary idolization, more than a dozen reprintings, several theatrical adaptations for the children's theater, a TV cartoon based on its prequel, The Hobbit, and several years of intense planning, The Lord of the Rings is about to become a movie. Now, this Route Bakshi movie, I think, is absolutely amazing. It has some flaws in it. It has some oddities in it. But the anticipation for this was huge at the time. It talks about some mishaps that were going on. Do you know that in the 60s, the Beatles wanted to make a Lord of the Rings movie? Really? Like, how weird would that have been, huh? Well, I mean, it would have probably <laughs> been a hit if they had done it. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But... Uh, I mean, this this was just so unique, this style of animation. And it talks about Ralph Bakshi, him being in Spain at the time of the writing of this article. He was overseeing a live-action attack on a castle for later animation. Now, I know that people of that time were thinking, like, well, how could you have live actors if it's been stated that this was going to be an animated movie? And it's that weird sort of cinema that they use that they layered animation over real-life actors, so it gave it a real eerie look. Um, this was absolutely fantastic. On TV, comets, hobbits, and dancing droids. Television is jumping headfirst into the realm of science fiction and fantasy special events this year, envisioning an avalanche of eye-boggling episodes for the 1970-1979 season. So they've, NBC completed production for Fire in the Sky, also, there's plans for a Flash Gordon animated series and a miniseries of Brave New World and The Martian Chronicles. ABC is planning a blockbuster for the fall of 79, including a two-hour fully animated holiday spectacular entitled Frodo, The Hobbit 2, which that never came to be. And CBS is planning a horde of spectaculars, including this fall's Star Wars Holiday Special, a one-hour opus still in the planning stages, which promises to deliver both science fiction and song and dance. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, all they, you can do is laugh. They were planning it, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Less science fiction, but a lot of song and dance. Also scheduled for the holiday season is a two-hour presentation from the tel Children's Television Workshop, The Chronicles of Narnia, and the animated film, 
Watership Down. We saw that recently. We did. But the little bunny rabbits. I love the animation. That style, that natural animation style is beautiful. Reinvasion of the Body Snatchers. An interview with director Philip Kaufman. So Philip Kaufman here talks about how he specifically wanted to make his version of the Body Snatchers a bit different than the original 1950s version. And we saw that this had more realism to it, and that was his goal. He didn't want to make it a gross movie, but he wanted to make it seem like if someone was invading someone's body, you would see the biological effects of it. He, he did a, a pretty good job with it. I mean, it was it was realistic in the sense that it, it looked real, and it was very scary. And he made it a point saying the, ninth, the 1956 version was not a mainstream classic. It was very niche. By the time of the late 70s, it became a cult classic, but he specifically wanted to make his movie accessible to mainstream audiences. And you look at the actors that are involved in there, such as Jeff Goldblum, Leonard Nimoy. Well, the thing is, his version became a classic, too. It By this time, it did, yes. Uh, I mean, he had great actors in there. Donald Sutherland was outstanding. He's always a great actor in everything he does, but yeah, he was great in that movie. The article says, as with any picture, the major problem is going to be selling it to the mass market. He's saying that he made this movie for the mass market. I would say so. There's nothing about it that that was odd about it or or w- was so bizarre that it wouldn't be mainstream. Especially when you get actors of that caliber, you could see why a lot of people have seen this version. Yeah, some people are going to go see it just for the actors. But I think it's still it, it's still just for people who, who like horror movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I like, you know, I was a Leonard Nimoy fan, but I wouldn't see it just back then just because it was a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was great. Science fiction's favorite son is back, and NBC has him for a full miniseries. Starlog proudly presents an exclusive look at renowned space artist Bob McCall's original designs for the forthcoming show, the 25th Century premieres this fall as Buck Rogers Flies Again. Okay, so is that what they were going to call the show at that time? <laughs> uh, there's a couple pictures here that look nothing like the ships that we saw in the TV show. But that's common for your early sketches. Yeah, this is just an artist's uh, conception of it from the beginning. But the idea was that they wanted to make sure that this series was going to be very different than the serials of Buck Rogers. Now, I've never seen the serials of Buck Rogers until after I saw the 70s show. This 70s show is my first foray into Buck Rogers. And and I haven't seen the serials, but I know that, the, well, the 70s show, the thing is, it was, you, you could tell that it's made in the 70s. It's, it had that look. And this article talks about that. They said they wanted to be modernized and up to date. Which, which it was, it for, was for when they made it. For yeah. the time period, yes. Um, and they said, because of the success of Star Wars, this needs to go forward. I mean, every single studio was piggybacking on the success of Star Wars by this point. And we loved it. We got all these great shows from it. And, and of course, Buck Rogers was one of my favorites. Hi, I'm Mark O'Connell, and I'm here to talk about the TV series The Invaders that was written up in Starlog Magazine, issue 16. First, I'd like to say I love Starlog Magazine. I have the number one issue. 
Then, strangely enough, I don't have the second and third issue. But then I have issue four and all the way through to like the 20s and 30s. I love those magazines. Anyway, back to The Invaders. The Invaders was a really fun science fiction TV show of the 1960s. I can't say it was a great show because it wasn't, but it was fun. And that's what it's all about in the end. So I was a kid. I was like seven, eight, nine years old when The Invaders came on. I do have memories of watching it as a kid. But unlike Star Trek, I didn't watch The Invaders religiously. And it could have been because it was on too late on a school night. I'm not really sure what the deal was there. But I didn't watch all of The Invaders. Um, So it's kind of fun watching it now as an adult and seeing episodes that I've never seen before, re-watching episodes that I fondly remember from my childhood. Uh, I just I just bought the box set, the two two season box set, just a few weeks ago for my birthday, and I've really been enjoying watching it. Here's what makes the Invaders work. So it's a story about this this man who discovers that aliens are invading the Earth. He tries to convince everyone else that this is happening. Everybody laughs at him. Everybody ridicules him. No one believes him. He's very much a man alone. In the pilot episode, he discovers that aliens are landing and taking over the Earth. And he tries to get his partner in his architecture firm to vouch for him. Well, the partner ends up getting killed by the aliens because he gets a little too close to the truth. And this is basically what sets the series in motion. David Vincent's partner and friend gets killed by the aliens. And so David Vincent just basically walks away from his job, walks away from his life, and hits the road trying to take out the aliens while convincing everybody that it's really happening. Now, they based this formula on um, uh, 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 the producer's earlier show called The uh, Fugitive, in which a a man was falsely accused of murdering his wife, and then he went uh, went on the lam for, I think, four seasons. So he's always being chased by the cops, um, but he is chasing the real murderer of his wife, cleverly known as the one-armed man. So in every episode of The Fugitive, The Fugitive shows up in town, meets somebody who has some sort of personal problem, helps that person with the personal problem, and then runs out of town before the police can catch up with him. They basically use that same formula for the invaders. Now, it strikes me as funny, though, because in my work as a TV writer, one of the very first things they drum into your head is, don't make the episode about the guest star. The episode always has to be about the star. Now, in The Fugitive and in The Invaders, the producer just turned that on its head. Because in every episode of The Invaders, virtually every episode, architect David Vincent comes moseying into town. Usually he's chasing after some newspaper headline he saw about a weird occurrence that can only be attributed to the aliens. So David Vincent arrives in town at the beginning of the show, starts to get involved in the personal lives of the characters in town, and... The story ends up sort of being about David Vincent solving this person's problems while also killing a few aliens. It's a weird formula, and it doesn't always work, but some of the times it it comes through. Now, some of my favorite things about the Invaders are this. They have very cool ray guns. The spaceships are super cool. Very simplistic design, but very, very um, convincing, I thought. When the, when the aliens are killed, they burn up in a flash of red flame, which is very convenient because it means David Vincent can never prove to anybody that he actually killed an alien. There's no body. There's never a body. Another funny thing about the aliens, 
they have a funny feature about their their, pink, their pinky finger. David Vincent always con- he describes it as a mutation. What it is is the invaders can't bend their pinky fingers. So if you see an invader, if you see a person sipping a cup of tea and they're holding their pinky out, it's not because they're being dainty. It's because they're invaders and they must be killed. So that's basically the setup for the invaders. I have to say, for about the first half of the first season, it's a little slow. I'm not sure if it was because the writers were just sort of getting a hang of the formula and they hadn't quite nailed down how they wanted to tell their stories yet. I think part of it is that. I think part of it also is just the... The actor Roy Thinnes, who played uh, David Vincent, I sometimes get the feeling he didn't really know where to go with the character because he was so underwritten. David Vincent isn't always given a whole lot to say or do except, you know, fight with aliens and, and kill aliens. So, so that's been a problem. But I have to say, about halfway through the first season, there's a really excellent episode called The Innocent. And in this episode, we, for the first time ever we get some sort of a taste of what David Vincent's life would have been like if he had just ignored the aliens and just gone back to work on Monday morning and just forgotten about the whole thing. He would have been a very happy guy. He was partner in a very successful architecture business. He was engaged to a beautiful woman. He seemed to have had it all. And yet when his partner was killed in that pilot episode, he chucked it all and went on the road chasing aliens. So this episode, The Innocent, it's pretty cool. For the first time, we really get an idea of the depth of David Vincent's commitment to his cause. And he actually talks about about how much he's given up. He's given up his job. He's lost his girlfriend. He's basically lost every element of his wonderful, perfect life so that he can try to save the world from aliens. And what does he get in return? All the other humans treat him like crap. They make fun of him. They run him out of town. They do terrible things to him just because they think he's a kook. So it's a really interesting dynamic. And there's actually a a long segment in Act 2 of The Innocent where they actually hypnotize David Vincent into thinking that he's gone back to his old life where he had it all. He had the successful business. He had the beautiful girlfriend. And boy, David Vincent really wants to be there. It's so much nicer than the life he's been living for the last few months. But alas, it turns out it was just hypnotism. David Vincent realizes the aliens were just conning him. They were just trying to make him think that they were nice so that he would relay some important information from them and he would stop chasing them. But it didn't work. So in the end, poor David Vincent had to come to terms with the fact that he really didn't have that good life anymore and he's probably never going to get it back. So, yeah, after that episode, about halfway through the first season, David Vincent becomes more of a fully rounded character. He gets angry more. He gets frustrated more. He even starts to get a little desperate more in the later episodes. Now, I have, I've barely started season two, so I can't really go into what happens there. But I can tell you that the way season one ended, with David Vincent really feeling desperate and uh, running out of answers for how to stop the aliens. It, it, this first season leaves off on, on a really good point, I think. It's a really, it's a really um, loaded way to end the first series. Is David Vincent going to succeed, or is he going to just drive himself crazy, constantly failing against the aliens? Because basically, the aliens keep winning. Every time David Vincent tries to stop him, he may slow him down, but he never stops him. The aliens always win. They always come back with a new evil plot. 
to destroy the world and make it their own. Oh dear, now look what's happened. This segment of the podcast has collapsed. Worse, it's accidentally set off the nuclear reactor I was messing around with. Oh well, only one thing for it. Uh, hello? Is that International Rescue? Five, four, three, two, one. Thunderbirds are... Sorry, what? You're putting me on hold? Crikey, things have certainly changed since the 1960s. Hmm. Oh well, while we're waiting... Hi, my name is Anthony Rooney, and I have a confession to make. I've never been one of those science fiction fans who are endlessly fascinated by special effects. I suppose that's because, for me, seeing too much of what goes on behind the curtain has the effect of spoiling the illusion. Which is why, as a rule, I would usually skip over any articles in Starlog devoted to special effects. Yes, it's true. I'd happily flip past those, for me, tedious pages of text and photos showing long-haired and bearded men in flared jeans, scratch-building spaceships from old model kits. I'd no interest whatsoever. For me, it was always the stories and characters that were important, not the effects. But there's always an exception to any rule. And for me, that exception came in issue 16 of Starlog, when the SFX section featured an article about the old Jerry Anderson puppet shows titled Super Marionation. This was, essentially, the history of how Jerry Anderson's TV and film career got started. And although much has been written about that history since, this was the first time I'd personally come across an in-depth, behind-the-scenes look at how Mr. Anderson came to entertain, well... Not just my generation, but generations to come. You see, reading that article back in 1978, I didn't know that a decade later, in the 1980s, I'd sit down and watch Stingray, Thunderbirds and Captain Scarlet with my much younger kid brother. And even further in the future, here in the 21st century, I'd watch those shows again with my own son. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's just say that throughout my life, the Jerry Anderson puppet shows have always been there. Going back to the early 1960s, one of my very earliest memories was going into the city with my grandparents one Christmas, and my gran buying me an inflatable Fireball XL5 balloon. It came with cardboard rocket fins that were supposed to glue on, but they fell off almost immediately. As it happens, Fireball XL5 and I both arrived in the world the same year but the series was still being repeated, rerun, right up until the advent of colour television. Sad to say, due to having been filmed in black and white, the adventures of Steve Zodiac, Venus, Matthew Matic and Robert the Robot, remember him? Going home, going home, are now largely forgotten. A pity really, because it was a great series. Oh, and it had a lovely theme tune too. I wish I was a spaceman, the fastest guy alive. 
I'd fly you round the universe in Fireball XL5. Sorry, you probably think I'm having a fit, but when I sing that, I can hear the full orchestration backing me. Despite growing up in the 1960s, I don't recall ever seeing reruns of Jerry Anderson's earlier puppet shows, Twizzle or Torture the Battery Boy, or even Four Feather Falls when I was younger. I do have vague memories of Supercar though. Not so much from reruns, but from a strip that ran in TV21 comic. Ah, good old TV21. TV21 was a weekly comic that, for the most part, featured strips based around Jerry Anderson's TV shows. But also, for some reason, Burke's Law, the old Gene Barry cop show that I'm sure must have held precisely zero interest for the young readers of TV21. I know Gene Barry was a wooden actor, but he wasn't quite a supermarination puppet. It's Burke's Law. The format of the comic was clever. TV21 pretended to be a newspaper from a hundred years in the future, and the comic strips were reports of things that were going to happen in that future world, with Supercar, Fireball XL5 and Stingray. So again, you can see how out of place Burke's Law was in all of that. It's Burke's Law. As soon as I was of reading age, I became a regular purchaser of TV21, by which time Thunderbirds had joined the rotor, and I was there for Captain Scarlet's first appearance. In fact, I was fortunate again, in that I inherited back issues going right back to the beginning from a slightly older cousin who had grown out of comics. <sighs> grown out of comics? What a terrible thought. One particularly enjoyable thing about TV21 was that it put all the Jerry Anderson puppet shows in one shared universe, which meant that a Mistron agent might turn up in Marineville, for instance, and did. The TV21 comic strips have been reprinted many times over the years, and if you've never come across them, I recommend that you seek them out. I'm in my late 50s now, and I still enjoy them, and I think that's something about Jerry Anderson. You never ever really grow out of his shows. Now you might be saying to yourself, that's all very well and good, but what actually is supermarionation? Believe it or not, I was asking that same question myself back in the 1960s. After all, the word supermarionation used to appear prominently in the titles of Stingray and Thunderbirds. The short answer is that it was a way of electronically syncing the voices of the actors to the lip movements of the puppet characters they were, er, uh, playing. The Starlog article goes on in more technical detail, but that's basically it. And if you're now saying, why didn't you just say that? Well, you try doing this with half a ton of rubble from a Starlog podcast lying on top of you. I mean, I've got an Invaders episode guide poking me in the ribs, a bit of David Gerald's latest article stuck up my nose, and the rest of me trapped by the feature on Fantastic Voyage. Actually, I might be needing the services of the combined miniature deterrent forces myself after this. We are about to launch Stingray. Stingray was one of the first British television shows to be filmed in colour though I personally would have been watching the exploits of Troy Tempest and the World Aquanaut Security Patrol in black and white back then. 
I recall a lot of Stingray merchandising in the shops during my early childhood, including, would you believe, a pair of comfortable slippers. Hey, that's the sort of merchandise I could do with now. Don't let anyone tell you that tie-in merchandising started with Star Wars, because long before that, the Jerry Anderson shows were generating all sorts of merchandise, as well as TV21 comic. There were books, jigsaws, records, water pistols and model kits. When my age was still numbered in single figures, I vividly recall submerging a toy stingray in the kitchen sink at my grandparents' house. Little did I know back then that one day, in the next century in fact, my son would have his own model of stingray to play with in the bath. That really is one of the joys of the Anderson shows, that they're multi-generational. Unless you live in the UK, you might not appreciate just how much of a British institution the Anderson puppet shows really are. There's something timeless about them. As much as I adore Anderson's live-action TV shows, UFO and especially Space 1999, they don't have the same timeless quality as the puppet shows. If you were to go out onto the streets of Britain and ask random strangers what their favourite Thunderbird was, well, okay, they might think you were nuts, but they probably have an opinion, and warm, fuzzy memories too. The one that immediately pops into my mind is queuing in line with my grandpa to see the first full-length Thunderbirds feature film, Thunderbirds Are Go, at the local cinema. I suppose that would have been early 1967. And you know what? As we sat in that darkened theatre watching the Tracy brothers rescue the first manned mission to Mars from disaster, I could tell my grandpa was enjoying the film every bit as much as I was. Little did I know what was coming next, though. Not just an enjoyable puppet show, but a puppet show that would completely blow my little kiddie mind. And at last those drums are actually appropriate. TV21, in its faux newspaper way, had been teasing its young readers with reports of another disastrous expedition to Mars. Something seemed to have gone badly wrong, and upon Spaceship Zero X's return to Earth, Spectrum Agent Captain Black had gone missing. What could this all mean? The answer to that came in the new series, Captain Scarlet and the Mysterons. A somewhat bleak but gripping tale of a misunderstanding, entirely our fault that triggers a war with an extraterrestrial civilization, A war that uses dead people as its main weapon. Captain Scarlet himself is dead. We see him murdered in the very first episode. The rest of the series is about a copy of the Captain created by the Mysterons. Fortunately, the copy is able to break his conditioning and the real Scarlet's personality re-establishes itself. Our hero becomes invaluable in the struggle against the Mysterons thanks to his very handy ability to come back from the dead. This might seem like an odd thing to say, but my favourite part of Captain Scarlet was the end. No, it's not that I was anxious for it to be over. I just used to love the end credits. A sequence of images depicting Scarlet in various fatal situations over which the theme tune would play. And again, it was all about death. They crash him and his body may burn. They smash him, but they know he'll return to live again. Morbid, but strangely fun. Oh, I really should have been a goth. 
This is very much a personal opinion, so feel free to disagree. But I think the Super Marionation shows peaked with Captain Scarlet. I remember when Joe 90 came along. No one in the school playground was much taken with that series. In fact, the character was considered deeply uncool. Great theme tune, yeah. But nothing else appealed about the show, despite the usual merchandising blitz. Rather than turning up in strip farm in TV21, Joe was given his own comic, Joe 90 Top Secret. This may not have been such a good idea, because Joe's adventures were about the last thing you'd want to read in that comic. Joe 90 Top Secret featured strips based on non-Jerry Anderson TV shows, and it was two American imports that became the most popular strips in that comic, Star Trek and Land of the Giants, two shows which had yet to even appear on British TV screens. By the way, Gary Conway, who starred in Land of the Giants, used to play Gene Barry's sidekick on... Yep, that's right, Burke's Law. It's Burke's Law. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Joe 90, the series and his comic, came and went. And next up was a rather curious, not to mention short-lived series called The Secret Service, a mix of live action and supermarionation. I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it either. So far, I really haven't felt the need to explain the premise of any of the Anderson shows I've been talking about, as they're all so well known. But there's a good chance you won't have seen The Secret Service, so I'll try and sum it up as briefly as possible. Um, okay. Imagine there's a branch of the British Secret Service called Bishop, whose agents work undercover as vicars. Yeah. And on top of that, one of these vicars has a miniaturisation device that can shrink his gardener down to the size of, well, a puppet. At which point, Father Unwin carries his shrunken handyman around in a briefcase while they have adventures. It's completely bonkers. I suppose, given a chance, the Secret Service might have caught on. But no one other than Anderson himself seemed to have much, um, faith in the series. It didn't sell to America and had only limited distribution in this country. I was lucky to see it. That was pretty much the end for Supermarionation, as Jerry Anderson was moving off into live action. UFO has since gained a cult following over the years. But as exciting as the series promised to be, when it first arrived on our screens in 1970, my eight-year-old self found it strangely dull. I know, I know, sacrilege. But bear in mind that I was eight going on nine years old, and for a kid my age back then, it was hard to get a handle on a series that one episode might be all spaceships and alien invaders, then the following week concentrate on the breakdown of the lead character's marriage. Basically, I was too young for UFO, and it wouldn't be until some years later that I would truly come to appreciate that series. On the other hand, I was precisely the right age for Space 1999 when it came along, and blasted Martin Lando and Barbara Bain into the farthest reaches of the universe, which was also round about the time that Starlog magazine itself appeared on the scene. Red alert, shields up, load torpedoes. On board the Artemis Spaceship Bridge Simulator, you and your crew take command of the TSN Cygnus and defend Terran space against an alien invasion. Work together as a team in an interactive simulator environment created by Command Flight Adventure. 
Does your crew have what it takes to survive? Book your session today at commandflightadventure.com. Report to the bridge at Sanctuary Gaming in Clarksville, Tennessee. This is Timothy Zahn, author of Star Wars Thrawn. Whenever I want to hear about Star Wars, I tune into Starpod Log, the greatest podcast in the galaxy. How you doing? This is Michael Havens, and this is my buddy Philip Brown, and we're from IC Star Wars. And Mike, I think uh, we have a really interesting subject to discuss today. Yes, uh, we do. We're actually going to, what are we going to do? We're going to fly back in time. That's that's right. That's right. So what we're going to do today, we are going to take a journey back in time, as you just mentioned, to Starlog. We're going to look at the article that starts on page 56. And the essence of the article, well, that's titled The Implications of Star Wars, right? And what the article is about is what are the things that George Lucas communicated to us, the audience, in Star Wars that he didn't have time to actually put on film. And so basically they're the areas where the story, uh, there was holes in the story that we might have wanted to know, but he did something else to imply that this was either the background or the trajectory or that kind of thing. So I think this sounds pretty fun to do, Mike. What do you think? Yeah, I'm actually super excited. Um, there's there's lots of stuff that he covers in the article. Uh, it was a guy named David Gerald that did the article uh, way back in the day, and he covers a bunch of really cool stuff and good ideas with uh, is Obi-Wan, uh, is he connected in some way? Does he know something about Luke? How does he keep running into Luke? Is he just waiting on Luke? And uh, that kind of stuff is really, really cool, Um, and I really like that. I think some of the huge implications he did just uh, overlook a little um, was one thing, uh, for example, the cantina. They walk into the cantina, and uh, the cantina is full of all these different species from all these different worlds, and uh, Mm -hmm. they're trying to book passage off-world. So that first tells us that not only is Star Wars taking place in space – But there's numerous planets and colonies housing many, many different alien races and stuff like that, that we are just seeing the tiniest tip of the iceberg at some bar at a uh, spaceport, you know? So I thought that was really, really cool, and he did not touch on that. But he had so many other ones that were really great. Absolutely. And I, I, you know, it's funny you mentioned the cantina, because I have a note on the cantina here. For me, at the time, I'm going to date myself here, but uh, (laughs) I was one that was lucky enough to see Star Wars in the theater. I can tell you what theater and what day. Uh, But uh, (laughs) when I was seven years old and the cantina scene hit me like, I mean, I was sold with the opening sequence with the Star Destroyer and the Tantive before, Jawas and Tuscans and all that stuff, but I got really punched in the face with the cantina. But here's the thing about that. Um, As I look back on it as an adult, when you saw a film or a TV serial about space, it was usually something that was far off, distant, and out of reach and something that you couldn't participate in. And coming back, bringing back the cantina, it, when you walked in the cantina, you felt like you were walking into someone's living room with all mm-hmm. these like massive numbers of alien beings and, and, and um, uh, species from all over the galaxy. And it was the first time I remember feeling like this is normal. Yeah. This is something that like, like uh, we could potentially experience this, you know? Yep. Um, uh, so, I mean, there is a uh, sort of a deep, deep message of diversity, you know, 
I think when Star you Wars... saw. Oh, sorry, man. Go ahead. No, I was no, going to no, say no, I think Star ahead. Wars is uh, very much has that message of diversity. I mean, there's no any kind of. I mean, I guess the bad guys are definitely not a message of diversity, but all the good guys <laughs> are all over the place, and they seem to be cool with everybody until they're not. Um, right. So I really like that about Star Wars. I mean, unless you're a droid, then they don't let you in the Ab- cantina. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And but before we get you down the rabbit hole here. I think we should probably set a couple of ground rules um, about this discussion. Um, it is the, the IT. So the we have to have rules. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the way for this to work well is we have to imagine, we have to think that um, this was in the context that there was only one Star Wars movie at the time, right? Yeah. So we've got to, so as we move forward in this discussion, let's pretend like Star Wars, or like ESB, the entire franchise doesn't exist except for star wars um and our impressions of that and what we took away from that i think we can do it yeah definitely man i mean all you have to do is forget the last 40 years that's easy right (laughs) (laughs) so uh mike i have uh one big uh implication from star wars what i want to talk about is the force Mm um and when it surrounds walk, us and binds us, it binds the surrounds universe us and together. Binds us. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, at the time, after I first saw Star Wars, the way the Force was portrayed was something that really anybody could do yep. if you were trained. You know, this is before younglings, before midichlorians, before the Jedi Council and all this other stuff that came up. But I remember walking. We're in 1977, man. I don't know what you're talking about. What are those things (laughs) you just said? Yeah, exactly. exactly. (laughs) Um, But uh, I walked to the theater feeling pumped that I could use the force. Right. And, you know, the entire concept of the force wasn't explored. Um, uh, In fact, in Star Wars, I made a little list of the different expositions of the Force in that time. Mm-hmm. So the first time we actually see it is when uh, – well, actually, the first time it's discussed is uh, uh, Obi-Wan's monologue in the hut with Luke, right? Yeah. So we have a general understanding that this, this it's this energy field, this Force that, that uh, you know, uh, binds the galaxy. The first time we see it is when he does the Jedi mind trick on the Stormtrooper in Mos Eisley. Yeah. Right? And then we see another. That was such a little for... touch, though. That Jedi mind trick, you know, it was. Right. That was right. even. Yeah, I get you. Exactly, but that's how. Yeah. Reduced to the funk, the basic. Yeah, they just gave the you course, little right? bits of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then a little bit in the lightsaber training on the Millennium Falcon, right, with the yeah. uh, the training ball, right. And then um, Obi Wan senses the destruction of Alderaan. Yeah. You know, like a, a million voices just cried out in agony, right? Yeah. And we're and suddenly then, silenced. Suddenly silenced, right. And then we see Obi-Wan's body disappear. Yeah. After uh, his battle with Vader. Yeah. Uh, or he was struck down by Vader. And then lastly, Luke uses the Force in the Death Star Trench run. Yeah. Right? So, uh, you know so what you're anyway, forgetting? What am I forgetting? The dark side of the force. Oh, you know, you're absolutely ah. right. Yes, Vader. Yeah, Vader. The force choke. The force choke, um, and then he did uh, the power to, to to blow up a planet is insignificant compared to the power of the force. Of the force. And then he right, choked right. out. Are you? Oh, <laughs> right. I find your lack of faith disturbing. 
exactly. Oh man, oh, Mike. Uh, we watch the movies differently, Phil. You watch it. As, I want to be a good Jedi. I'm like, wow, you can choke people out with your mind. That's what I was trying to well, practice. <laughs> well, I guess that's why you uh, you founded the Imperial Commissary and all right. its its uh, its uh, 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 shootouts, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Evil will and always why... triumph because good is dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why my favorite, my one of my focuses is uh, uh, farm boy Luke's. You know, yeah. That was, you know, that kind of a thing. But um, well, that's what's perfect. So man. Think... We're like peanut butter and jelly. We're definitely not exactly. the same thing, but we both love the opposite <laughs> things, and it fits together in one big ball of wonderfulness. Right, right, right. But you take all these um, sort of minimal uses of the Force in Star Wars, yeah. and you couple them together, and you walk away from that, and you think, this is something that anybody can be trained to do. Yep. And I remember that was the, you know, pumped me up when I was a kid, and I'm going to go out, and I'm going to learn to use the Force. And... Uh, you know, what does that do? I mean, I'm probably going a little bit off the rails here, but those kind of mess, getting those kind of messages as a kid, they shape your life, right? Yeah, man. It's like, uh, uh, and, and, well, it's 1977. Well, was Figment out in 1977 in Disney? You know the Figment ride where it's use your imagination or whatever? Figment I don't at remember. Disney World. Anyway, there's this purple dragon Figment at Disney World, and it's all about learning to use your imagination. And that's really uh-huh. what Star Wars did for us. And that ride is so old, it may be from 77. So this may be valid on Earth. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it, uh, it's, yeah, it really, it sparked. I absolutely agree. Absolutely. Because yeah. it sparked your yeah. imagination. You could be a Jedi. You could be a pilot. A kid from nowhere can change the world. It was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's the kind of thing that we didn't see much of before star wars right so that uh, uh that one implication uh at that moment in time in 1977 you know and the lack of clarity around what the force is and how it works and who can do it uh that implication sent you know tens of thousands if not millions of kids away from there just wanting to you know embrace the power of the force you know thinking yeah. that, they, that they could do it and um I think that one thing in particular really set the tone for the entire, you know, all the stuff that we love up to today. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Well, yeah. you know what else it mm-hmm. really opened up? Because this was a time where the only aliens ever were like big green, welcome to show me to your leader, aliens. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then all exactly. of a sudden, Lucas just dumped what? 50 different alien races on you in like one scene. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> it, exactly. it was a trip. I mean, before this, all aliens, think about it. Buck Rogers, everything. Aliens are pretty much that one standard humanoid looking to antenna. Right. You know, exactly. But, you know, uh, from uh, uh, another implication standpoint, uh, you're talking about droids, the droids. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't think of uh, an, another, uh, as our film or TV serial before that, that sort of humanized Atrocious. the droids, yeah. right? Yeah. So, I mean, exactly. I mean, like you said, they were, take me to your leader, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And you have R2 and 3PO who were basically just as human as everybody else. Right. Um, you know, on the set. And, yeah, essentially personalities. Uh, Even though R2 didn't speak, he had a very, very vibrant personality. Yeah. Right. Right. And, you know, and from an implication standpoint, I think what we uh, t- took away from that is that 
you know, droids is particularly the ones designed to uh, to help with a variety of different things, whether protocol or astromech or whatever, were just part of the landscape. You know, they were they were sentient beings just like everybody else, mm-hmm. right? So once again, another sort of message of uh, diversity. Uh, right. in, in the, the white galaxy. But them not letting the droids into the cantina was also showing mm-hmm. that there is that as well. You know what I mean? It was yeah, very, it was a whole lot of implications in that scene, like a lot. Mm-hmm. And then oh, it implied yeah, that Han was a bad guy. It implied that, well, sort of a bad guy. It implied he definitely did stuff wrong. It implied that the giant Wookiee mm-hmm. Chewbacca was a giant Wookiee um, or a mm-hmm. giant bear thing. I mean, but on Han Solo's side, you know what I mean? It implied a lot of things for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, one of the things George Lucas did, I mean, and, 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 you know, I'm preaching to the choir, everybody who, you know, Star Wars understands this, but he took a lot of the, you know, the messages that were, you know, in the seventies, dude, it was a bleak time for films. I mean, it was freaking right. taxi drivers, Serpico, freaking the Godfather, anti-heroes, freaking, uh, doom and gloom and, you know, overcoming advert. I mean, it was just heavy, heavy stuff. I mean, you had a couple of campy comedies. You had horrors like The Exorcist, and then the mainstream was just dark Chinatown. Right. Bad men doing bad things. Well, right? even the comedies so, were like... Animal House, you know, that that, that kind of stuff. Um, so George Lucas turned a lot of the stuff on its head. Um, right. I mean, like, uh, the concept of used space, you know... <laughs> Dude, everything, all, all the tech messed up and so. Oh broken. yeah, everything had a scratch. You know, I mean, the Falcon was. Uh, a, I called my my beater car the Falcon um, <laughs> when I was growing up, and the reason why is because you believed mm-hmm. you could have the beater car, you know. Right. That right. really was better than the best car in the world because it's the Falcon. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. But yeah. You know, the implication of all the messed up tech and oh, yeah. that, you know, used living in, yeah, living yeah. in space isn't easy, right? Interplanetary travel isn't easy. Look, things get broken yep. and, and they fall out that, of hyperspace every... or they, you know, well, they didn't really fall uh-huh. out of hyperspace in the first one, did they? The Falcon it, worked pretty uh... good in the first one. No, I just couldn't this is tougher hyperspace. than I thought it was going to be, man. <laughs> <laughs> No, but again, the message is if there was a, a, a space-based um, series, like I remember watching Silent Running when I was like five or six years old, right? And that was the one where they had the the Earth was uh, dying and they had a botanical garden on this big space right. and then some of the robots, right? But everything was clean and glossy and living in space was just like this, you know, yeah, uh, the perfect uh, sanitized, yeah. perfect and see, and here George Lucas comes along with, here's a pile of junk, put it in a big box, and let these little people, and what kind of call them Jawas, drive it around yeah. and try to sell it. Stick them. a couple yeah. carburetors um, to it and paint them brown. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that was like, whoa, look, this is like a junkyard, but the coolest junkyard I've ever seen, yeah. right? Uh, implication, living in space ain't easy. It's just like, uh, you know, we go through cycles of life and things on planet Earth, and... Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, it doesn't have well, to be. Well, you know uh... what? On that same point, man, Baru cooking the cabbage, making the blue milk. She mm-hmm. was still like legitimately cooking stuff. It wasn't like a lot oh, of yeah. other ones where it's like you push three buttons and out spits, spits like a pizza made of goo that tastes like pizza. You know what I mean? It mm-hmm. was 
She's right. making cabbage in a boiling pot of water. Like, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and to take it a step further, where did the uh, what they live? The Lars family. Yeah. Underground. Yeah. Right. Basically, in a hobbit hole. Right. To keep the cool. Um, yeah. And. And and what's the implication of it, of just that move? It's like humility. It's it's yeah. you know uh, sort of salt of the earth, well salt of Tatooine, uh, uh, grit. You know, well, the, hard uh, work. the regular yeah. kid can grow into a right. You know, yeah, I hear you into saving the yeah, universe. Basically, basically, this was every you know sort of um, uh, middle class or lower middle class family. Like you know, you could while you couldn't relate to the being on a uh, different planet you could relate to the living conditions and the struggles that they yeah. you know the Lars we went through i wanted and, to go to tashi uh, station to pick up some power converters you can definitely relate to exactly. that you got to mow the lawn <laughs> i wanted to go to the video game place to play asteroids right yeah exactly same deal but anyway so yeah so uh i would like to throw you uh, um another concept mike i'll catch uh, it and i think this is my favorite my favorite one. Um, and this goes, uh, I believe, is tied to uh, how Lucas used hero Joseph Campbell's uh, myth, the hero's journey uh, overlay with Luke, right? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of classic, you know, uh, centuries-old storytelling tropes that that, um, yeah, uh, that are repeated over and over again in all these cultures. We all know this. We've had this discussion before. It's been talked about ad nauseum. But here's the fun part. Yeah. Uh, Leia. Yeah. Began. Leia's always the fun part. Oh, she's the fun part. <laughs> exactly. She, Leia began as your classic damsel in distress. Yeah. You know, kidnapped by the evil empire and uh, yeah, imprisoned even stuck because in of a it. prison. Yeah, everything. Yep. Right. And, uh, Luke Han and Chewie uh, with Ben coming along. They, yeah. they go off to uh, and, and uh, inadvertently realize that, that in search of her, right? Yeah. What happens though, moments after they break, Luke breaks her out of the freaking. She, um, she uh, grabs the, the gun cell. and takes charge. <laughs> she takes control, right? <laughs> and so I, I can't think of. She a grabbed that blaster and was like, "Get into the garbage, you flyboy." <laughs> <laughs> exactly. She she went from a damsel in distress into the only true rebel leader. Yeah, for sure. Uh, in the, basically in the galaxy at the time. I mean, she took those guys and cleaned up with them, you know, and, you know, really, if you look at the, the one person with leadership quality, you know, other on the, on the rebel side, at least in the, for Star Wars, who is it? It's Leia. Who is she? A woman, yep. right? Oh yeah, for sure. And, it was very and groundbreaking, was, especially in the seventies, man. The only roles for women were like James Bond roles, which I wouldn't even say half of them on this because we'll get flagged. Like half of the names. (laughs) Yeah. Like I said, they're all damsels in distress or side pieces or things like that. Right. Holy smokes. Here's a woman like basically in charge of the freaking everything. (laughs) Uh, This, this new universe. Well, at that time, because we are way back in 1977 at that time, she was it. She was the end all be all. She was the top dog. I mean, she was the one standing at that console at the end that people were like, you know, this is going on. They were talking to her. She ran it. Yeah, and she put Han, Chewie, and Leia in their place. She even freaking read the riot act to uh, Tarkin. She read, yeah. <laughs> I recognize Before. your foul stench when I was brought on board. <laughs> exactly. 
you really shouldn't Jeez. talk that much garbage if you're on a Death Star and you're in that much trouble. You know what I mean? <laughs> Darth Vader. Only you could be mm-hmm. so bold. Or no, wait, was that? Tarkin, I expected you to be holding Vader's leash. Like, she called Vader a dog in front of him. Like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody else called Darth Vader a dog, ever. Except for No, exactly. Exactly. And lived to tell about it. Yeah, sure enough. (laughs) (laughs) I expected you to be holding Vader's leash. Wow, that's a real good dig, man. And she told Tarkin that he smelled. She's like, you smell, and there's your dog. <laughs> right there in her first words to the bad guys. That was really cool. Yeah, Leia, top notch, Phil. Yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so what else, what else <laughs> do we have on deck, Mike? Uh, you know what? I did want to mention that... one thing because it, it, it is a wonderful article, and it was written way back in the day, and I'm sure it's unbelievably difficult to catch everything. But he picked on the Dianoga for, like, four things. And he's like, why did the Dianoga end up in the trash masher? Was it because he got thrown in there or someone had their alligator and flushed it? And I guess he's trying to be funny and stuff like that. But no, man, Mm -hmm. it was obviously in there to, like, eat stuff or to chew through, like, I mean, any maintenance system. Go go outside into your septic tank and see if there's any living organisms in there handling your septic tank. Because there are. (laughs) But uh, so I'm sure you would have to import them. But you remember there's, like, a door and it goes, like, And then the Dianoga leaves. I mean, there's definitely a door for that thing to escape through in order for them to shut and squish the trash. So that thing I definitely think was intended to be there. I don't think it was a flushed alligator. But I did want to say that. That was something I picked up in the article where I'm like, well, man, no way. Because you heard that gate open, and he must have missed the gate opening, you know? Yes. It's hilarious that you bring that up because I had the exact same reaction. It's obvious to try to reduce the waste, just like you'd put algae in a, uh, like you said, a septic tank or something like that. It's just you're working on what, 100,000 stormtroopers or something? You need big algae. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And by the way, I think someone would be like, would you imagine anybody on the Death Star having a pet that got too big and they threw it in the freaking trash compactor. That's why I think he was just trying to be like, ha ha. (laughs) Ha Maybe someone flushed their alligator. It's like, come on, man. Do you Mm -hmm. think anybody on the Death Star would, like, break any kind of rule like that? You got Vader waiting down Ah. the hallway that's like, you came out of light speed too soon and you're an admiral. (laughs) Well, that didn't happen yet. It's 1977. I forgot. Right, right, right. Right. (laughs) Um, So... Another thing, Mike, you know, since uh, um, uh, you're so connected to the Imperial, because I wanted to talk about how the Empire was perceived in Star Wars, right? Awesome. Because, look, we all knew that, you know, we had probably saw a dozen Stormtroopers. We saw Vader. We saw the Admirals and Tarkin. um, And so he didn't have a whole lot of time to show the might of the Empire, Right. But we sure got a hell of a lot of good visuals to demonstrate it through implication, right? Absolutely. The first, the first of which is the little Tantive Four being chased by the massive, massive Star Destroyer. The opening scene. Well, when what you figure out you... when you figure out that Leia is so important, like you were saying before, then that scene even is mm-hmm. more poignant because that's probably the biggest ship they have. That's what you're thinking. You know what I mean? Because you're like, well, she's the best one of them. That's probably the best thing they got. And holy moly, it's like the size of a peanut compared to an airplane. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, totally. All right, that one's the first. And, yes, it was awesome. 
an imperial. What, yeah. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> what other sim- symbols, Mike, in in Star Wars, hit you to demonstrate the strength and the might of the Galactic Empire? Of the Galactic Empire. Well, uh, they pull over somebody, and you figure they're gonna pull them over and be like, "Hey, uh, we're gonna check aboard your ship," like every other sci-fi thing ever. Um, mm-hmm. where they walk onto the ship and then they have a problem and then they shoot it out. But it wasn't like that. They just right. came on and like cleared it and then took everybody into mm-hmm. custody and then grabbed the captain by this big giant, the scariest creation ever known to man, Darth Vader. And he just like picks up a dude and with one hand chokes him and is like, and you know, what are the plans? Where are the plans that they sent you? And he's like, we received no plans. He's like, man, you received them. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, exactly. whoa, he is not to be messed with. And you see the mm-hmm. way everybody treats him and, like, the way the stormtroopers are even. Um, the the very first, uh, as soon as they walk through the, uh, the door, as soon as they blast the door and they walk through. And they're getting Absolutely. shot and stuff and the other ones just walk by. And then they're like, they check if they're dead. And as soon as they know they're dead, they stand up and it's like no big deal. And then they all spring to attention when Vader comes in. It's really, this is not messing around. It is top, top, top-notch military. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, even Vader's costume alone is an implication. Um, Vader's costume uh, alone is just, you're never going to have a good day hanging out with that guy. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then for me, when just when you thought the Star Destroyer was the the, the most massive ship you've ever seen in your life... Then what happens? They park it in a Death Star. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the ultimate symbol of might, the ability to destroy a planet, you know. Uh, So uh, and then it even gets better because Vader explains how that is insignificant compared to what he has. You know what I mean? It's very the Empire. The entire Empire thing, and to tell you the truth, well, we're still in 1977, so forget it. The entire Empire thing, it seems to be that they keep getting better and better vehicles. I wonder if that'll continue in the future. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, so again, Lucas didn't have a whole lot of time to uh, visually show or demonstrate the might of the Empire, but through several key things, like the Star Destroyer of it, it boom you immediately you're like these guys are the nixon administration <laughs> right yeah they were literally everywhere too they were uh yeah well that's what they were going for i mean on the background but um they were even the way they everywhere you would go there was stormtroopers you land at this spaceport there's stormtroopers you go here there's it's stormtroopers you know what i mean they're they're everywhere um right which was really, really crazy and oppressive and stuff like that. But the reason why I like the, the Empire so much, man, is because they always had better everything. And their troopers <laughs> looked cooler. And their mm-hmm. Darth Vader was awesome. And all their outfits were cool. And the Death Star looks cool. And Star Destroyers are cool. And TIE Fighters are cool. And what do you got? I mean, the only thing cool that the, the Rebel Alliance has really is the X-Wing. I mean, not to pick on it, but, I mean, all their other vehicles are subpar compared to Imperial vehicles. I cannot agree with you more. I mean, aesthetically, the I mean, everything Empire is yeah. everything you want to emulate because it's just so flippin' cool, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they got all the cool yeah. stuff. So that's why I like the Empire because they have all the cool stuff. 
Plus, Absolutely. man, yeah, if you're going to wear a bunch of gear from one side or the other, I mean, if you mm-hmm. stick with Imperial gear, you get black and red. Those are two good right. colors for your outfits. You know? Exactly. You go with Rebels, yeah. you could get stuck with, like, orange and white. And as much as I like orange and white, it's like, you know, it's tough to pull off for day to day. But black and red, you <laughs> oh. can do. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, Mike, we only have a couple minutes left here uh, uh, for this segment. But I wanted to end on something uh, that... We both have a particular expertise in. George Lucas obviously um, uh, embedded a lot of implications in Star Wars. Mm -hmm. But then they released the toys. Mm -hmm. And I think that there was an interesting side effect in that uh, all these kids that saw this film and were uh, just filled with so much joy about it were able to, for the first time, tell their own stories and create their own implications. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, you know, the, you, know the, you, you, you could use your cantina playset and your action figures and create uh, your, own ver- your own version of the side stories, your yeah. own version of the implications. And, Mike, uh, you know, look, you've got an empire uh, in the Imperial Commissary. Look huh. at 40, 50, 45 years later. Right. Yeah. And we're still playing Star Wars. Oh, yeah. Right. So, yeah, no, it's ageless. I mean, it created our imaginations, and our imaginations have created everything. I mean, the reason why our houses look the way they do, the reason why our collections look the way they do, or our cars, or our hair, or our eyes, or our glasses, or our shoes, or whatever, is that's our personality. And we got that personality by growing it through things like this. And uh, I'd say Star Wars is a huge one, because, I mean... I'm looking behind you, and there's Star Wars stuff. You're looking behind me, and there's Star Wars stuff. I mean, <laughs> so it obviously, yeah, it definitely stuck with us through all these yeah. years. It was nice flying back to 1977 and talking about it like this because uh, you really don't think about that. But I do want to say there was one thing. Uh, let me find it real quick. And so he wrote uh, here, after all, just what else is the old guy doing out there in the desert? I mean, with all his skills and knowledge he should be trying to resurrect the jedi knight shouldn't he or does he know that that moment in the far-off galaxy is a crucial nexus point the implication it seems fairly obvious is that obi-wan kenobi's destiny is to ensure that luke skywalker is properly equipped to meet his destiny after all he doesn't show up at the right time to leave but it's unbelievable because he is saying like shouldn't he go somewhere and be teaching or using his skills or something like that to teach Luke and to, to, to train him. And it's so dead on because we're still wanting a Jedi temple. I mean, we were talking and I know, I know this is for the seventies, but just to bring it a little bit current, um, just recently we were talking about, uh, the Mandalorian and how we want to see if Luke goes and trains Grogu and we have a Grogu episode in the Jedi temple. Cause we still 40 something odd years later, we still want to see what this guy really, he was, David Gerald, wherever you are, I do have to tip my hat to you, man, because some of the things you said were really, really on point. Um, unbelievable. Like and the before, way. And before their time. Oh, totally. I mean, for example, his the third point he makes in the article was we are told that Darth Vader is one of Obi Wan Kenobi's former students who was seduced by the dark side of the force the implication here is that the force can be used for good or for evil but there is an implication as well that must be considered darth vader is obi-wan kenobi's greatest mistake now we didn't find that out for 35 years 30 years exactly that's phenomenal i don't think george lucas even knew that at the time i know right (laughs) 
Maybe right. George Lucas read this guy's article and was like, hey, let's spice up Empire. <laughs> you, you never know. Yeah. Stranger things have happened, right? Classified information. It's always fun to look at the classified ads in the back of Starlog magazine, such as T-shirts, quality 100% cotton T-shirts that are completely washable, of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Each shirt is five ninety five plus fifty cents for postage. Well, that's pretty cheap. It is. <laughs> I love the fact that they stress that it is completely washable. We need I to. Mean, yeah, was a lot of t-shirts not washable back then? <laughs> I mean, we have to make sure that we highlight this next time we go to the gaming area of a convention. How about this, Star Wars four hundred foot Imperial cruiser attack on Rebel ship. So I imagine it's the the reels. Lots of Darth Vader, Night of the Living Dead. You could tell these articles, these little ads had a, had a word limit, so there's not complete sentences. You're supposed to figure it out. Okay, 400 foot. That's the the reel to reel. Darth Vader. I guess so. It's supposed to have a lot of scenes of Darth Vader. Send L.A. Films, Kude, California. Complete Star Wars merchandise list. What? Where? How much? Only one dollar. From TKRP, Hanover, Michigan. Attention, Gene Roddenberry, George Lucas, John Dykstra, and Jack Webb. I designed and build spaceship miniatures. Your comments are welcome. Plus, anyone else that's interested. D. Ware Enterprises, Paducah, Kentucky. Oh, oh, specifically reaching out to those people to say (laughs) something about it. It's amazing. I mean, the classified ads, I, I spent hours looking at classified ads in magazines when I was a kid. Just dreaming about me. I wish I could have some of this stuff. Star Wars trading cards. Wonder Bread. Two fifty per set. Postpaid. One dollar per set for twenty or more sets. Kovacs Comic Book Store, Cleveland, Ohio. Get the teachings of the Force. A fantastic reading experience, limited collector's edition. It doesn't say what it is though. It's just called the Teachings of the Force. It's a book. By Horizon Publications out of Riverton, New Jersey. It sounds neat. It sounds like it's going to have a lot of philosophical sayings and things like that. I imagine so. Yeah. Yeah. It's the type of thing that we look for these curiosities. I always prefer to buy things in real life, not online. And these are the type of wacko things we look for in used bookstores and stuff. I haven't come across that one yet. Adult stop motion fans with money. Rare slides and literature. Send S-A-S-E. Okay, so what, what what do you get out of that? Adult stop motion fans with money. I yeah, it sounds weird. I guess they're saying it's something expensive. <laughs> I, don't I mean, know. oh yeah, what's adult stop motion? <laughs> I don't know. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu This show is brought to you by Holosuite Media. Computer, list other available Holosuite Media programs. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Blast Shield, a Star Trek Lordex podcast. I think we all thought Ransom was going to go into that fight scene thinking that it was game over before it even started and he was going to lose. But I think the moment he rips his uniform off, yeah. which is hard anyway to rip a shirt, but to rip an actual like 
jacket like that. Mm. Pretty impressive. And then he had like about, I don't know, I think it's like 62 abs. He just looked ripped. And then he was just like, you know, a little bit of this. Yeah. A little bit of that. <laughs> I was just going to say, it was the way that he also narrated it. It was just perfect. It was great. Ransom definitely went to the school of Kirk Fu. Ransom Fu, maybe we should be calling it. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, The Janeway, a Star Trek Voyager podcast. I don't know what the director, which I think was David Livingstone, I think, was thinking here, but they basically did a montage of them running around the ship, and it's just like, ugh. It was very rocky. It was. I expected Eye of the Tiger to be playing. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Especially when Shell picks up the water from the table and is drinking it. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.